Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, Locum Tenants should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if Locum Tenants is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hey, everybody. You are back again for another episode of the Neil the Ortho podcast. Welcome to our board slash our OITE review series. And without further ado, not much talking for me today. Let's just go ahead and continue on and talk about some more hand and wrist injuries. So let's get into it. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. And so what are the characteristics of fracture patterns that relate to the healing capacity of the scaphoid? Yeah, so again, this is going to be your fracture location because again, we know that they have their blood supply with via retrograde flow, mainly through dorsal those dorsal ridge vessels. So, those distal pole fractures can heal and cast in you know in as short as eight weeks or so. But for those proximal pole fractures, some of those can heal not operatively, but they may take up to six months to heal. So it's not going to be the same time period again because they just has a limited blood supply. So the more proximal the fracture is the longer it may take to heal. And so what are some, not for non-displaced scapegoat fractures, I don't know, I'm thinking about distal radiuses here, but uh, what are some non-op treatment for non-displaced scapegoat fractures? They may test on cast versus splint. And so cast is definitely better, but Dornberg in 2011 did a study on short versus long casts and spica versus no spica casts. And found no difference in outcomes. So basically said that you could do a short arm cast and that's equivalent to full arm and elbow immobilization. So casting is the way to go for scaphoids. And then what's the difference in healing rate for operative versus non-op of non-displaced scaphoid fractures? There's none. <laughs> it's not really a difference in the in the healing rate you know, when you're looking at operative versus non-operative. But the patients, again, that are treated operatively do have increased complications, but they have a quicker return to work and increased grip strength. And this is, I think I, I remember having this one patient that worked as a bartender and they're like, I just need to get back to work. Like, what is the quickest thing that I can do to get me back to work? And so it's good to know, like, hey, you know, if we fix this operative-wise, you may get back to work a little bit sooner. This can be a big deal, you know, like being out of work for some people and not making any type of income is a big stressor. So mm. being able to get back to work quicker is, is very important in a lot of patients. And they also have increased grip strength in the patients that you operate on. Now, what are the operative indications to fix a scaphoid fracture? That would be the displacement greater than one millimeter if they are associated with a perilunate dislocation. And then some proximal pole fractures, because we know that they have such a low healing rate or a slow healing rate to begin with, these are the ones that you're going to keep a close eye on and you may just want to kind of get ahead of the game and and operate on those knowing that it may not heal in the first place. And so 
doing something like a bone graft in the acute setting may actually be of better benefit rather than keeping a patient in a cast for six months and then having them go on to non-union and then you're having to to do kind of a bigger procedure for them in terms of like vascularized bone graft versus not. So if there's any displacement greater than one millimeter, that's that's the usual indication that they're going to test you on. And so what are some of the approaches used to treat a scaphoid fracture? Yeah, main things, you can go dor- dorsal or you can go volar. So for uh, a dorsal approach, you may be used for proximal pole fractures. It may allow for a little bit of a more central screw placement. Out of the way, I just remember this, if I look at a lateral x-ray of, of the wrist, like the more more distal part is volar in the more proximal part is more dorsal. So I'd think, hey, well, if you go dorsal, you may use it for more proximal pole fracture. Yeah. If you go volarly, this may be more useful for a distal fracture. And when you go volarly, the, the screws may be trans-trapezial in order to be parallel to the bone. And volarly, you may actually go volar to help patients that have these kind of a hump back deformities with these skateboard fractures. But there is you should note that there is no difference in union or functional outcomes between the two. So questions will like ask, oh, should you go dorsal? Should you go fuller? There's no no difference in union between the two. But if they have a humpback deformity, it may be useful to do a fuller approach. And, you know, there's also a an arthroscopic assisted option, which I have not seen done. Most of the, all the scaphoid fractures fixations that I've been in have been like open. I haven't seen anybody scope them yet, but I guess it is an option. So what are some treatment options for patients with scaphoid non-unions? Yeah, the scaphoid non-union is the, I mean, I've never, I mean, I treated some in residency, but that was at the direction and expertise of my mentors there. And they were the ones who pretty much treated all the scaphoid non-unions while I watched. But ORAF with bone graft is the kind of standard of care there. And especially like you talked about with the humpback deformities, You want to use something that has some sort of structure to it, like an iliac crest bone graft or some other structural graft that you don't just take metaphyseal bone because metaphyseal bone is fairly weak. You want that cortical strut to help provide that length back. And like you were talking about, the humpback deformity basically means that just like a humpback whale kind of breaching up out of water, that the dorsal aspect of the scaphoid is too curved and the and the scaphoid looks more like a like a kidney bean than it than it usually does. And so mm-hmm. if you go volar, you you don't rely on flexion of the wrist to access it. And because more flexion at the wrist is only going to worsen the humpback deformity. But if you go volar, you have to extend the wrist and bring that humpback deformity back out to length on the volar side and make the scaphoid a more straight bone like it usually is. And then if they have non-union with AVN, that's when you're getting that vascularized bone graft either from the medial femoral condyle or from the distal radius. And and then, yeah, the non-union with the AVN and humpback deformity, that's the big one for the medial femoral condyle, which is a cool dissection. I did one of those in residency that, I mean, it's it's kind of cool to to look through. You just do a straight medial approach to the distal femur and you go subvastus, you reflect vastus anterior, and you really can see this nice kind of 
arterial supply as it dives deep into the medial femoral condyle, right where that artery goes in. You just create kind of this one centimeter by one centimeter square, and then you clip the vessel, transport it up to the scaphoid. You like or not ligate? You you attach the your anastomosis vessel into the radial artery, and you fix the scaphoid nonunion. So they they can do fairly well, but it is quite the surgery for a wrist to have your knee cut open as well. So not not the first option that people jump to. And what are some of the non-vascularized graft options for scaphoid fractures? Yeah. So these are these are like things like the iliac crest graft. You can use a volar distal radius. You can use an osteochondral rib autograft. And these are all things that may be useful when structural support is needed. So for example, like that that humpback deformity you may use. Those may need a little bit of structural support when you fix them so they don't get that deformity again. So again, these non-vascularized graft options, iliac crest graft, volodistal radius, or osteochondral rib. Now, what are some what are some vascularized grafting options and their blood supply? Because I, I guess they like to test us on the blood supply too. For scaphoid fractures, non-union where AVN may be present. Yeah, the the blood supply, I guess, would be a quite a testable topic there. So the main not the main one, but one of them is a dorsal radial distal radius where you use the one, two intercompartmental supraretinacular artery. And that just makes kind of intuitive sense that if they're going to test you on that specific graft, if it's dorsoradial, that's going to be around the first and second dorsal compartments. And so it's the one, two intercompartmental supraretinacular artery. The volar distal radius graft is based on the volar carpal artery. The medial femoral condyle that I was talking about earlier is the descending genicular artery. And it has, I think it's mainly because of the size of the artery and the reliability of establishing blood flow that it would have a shorter time to union compared to the one, two intercompartmental supraretinacular artery, and then really any other option that has vascular attachment to a graft. So vascularized fibula versus any other kind of vas- vascular attachment to bone that is easily accessible and and also kind of reasonable to to do. You're not going to do some huge dissection for for such a small bone. So you have options and it's it's fairly easy to get to those options. And so then going on to, let's say, unfortunately, the patient develops AVN, they develop a non-union, but they get lost to follow-up for a couple of years. What What's the diagnosis that you're going to see in this patient when you get those wrist x-rays after a couple of years of having a non-union? Yes, yeah, so we call this a scaphoid non-union advanced collapse or a snack wrist. So this is like a form of post-traumatic arthritis of the wrist. And for those that want to go and learn some more about snack and slack wrist, we have an episode with Dr. Ryan Rose who came on and, and talked about it. And subsequently, it was actually the most reviewed video <laughs> on YouTube that we have. So a lot of people, I guess, like this the snack and slack wrist. So we did a great job explaining it for those Thanks. that want to dive a little bit deeper into it. But so this snack wrist or this scaphoid non-union advanced collapse, again, these patients that had a scaphoid non-union, lost a follow-up, and now they're having collapse. 
What are the different stages of a snack wrist? Yeah, these are, I think that these are testable, not necessarily from a, here's an x-ray, what stage of snack is this? But the next question after this that we're going to cover are the operative treatment options. And depending on how advanced a snack wrist is, depends on what you can and can't do. So first, the stages of snack, it's Roman numerals one, two, three, four. The first one is, so we already established scaphoid nonunion. So the scaphoid nonunion is not necessarily a part of this, but it's what happens after you get that nonunion, what happens to the wrist after. So you get radial styloid arthritis by itself. And then two is you get the radial styloid arthritis from one, but you also have radioscaphoid involvement. So it's not just arthritis at the styloid, but now it's within the radioscaphoid. And then number three is radioscaphoid, radiostyloid, but also scaphocapitate and even capitolunate involvement. And then number four is pancarpal arthritis. So kind of arthritis throughout the lunate scaphoid capitate, also the lunate facet and the scaphoid facet, as well as the radial styloid. So it how much arthritis and where it is depends on the severity of SNAC. And then what are some of the operative options for SNAC? Yeah, so... You know, for these early early stages, you could do like a distal scaphoid pulled excision. And you can also do a radial styloidectomy, you know, if they just have like that radial styloid arthritis. But things to note about if you're doing a styloidectomy is that if you excise more than four millimeters of that radius, it can lead to radial scaphitate, radial scaphit, scaphit, <laughs> oh, I don't know how I'm having this, ligament injury. <laughs> Again, so excising the more than four millimeters can lead to injury of the radioscaphitocapitate ligament. You can also do a wrist denervation. So again, you denervate the wrist so it doesn't cause the pain. So that could be partial or complete. You can do a proximal row carpectomy where you remove that proximal row of bones. So you just take them all out. And traditionally, one of the things that they look for, and I still think they test on this, is that if you how to decide if you're going to do this versus another procedure is if you look at the capitate and you see that there's degeneration on the articular surface of the capitate or there's any capitate degeneration, that would be a contraindication to doing a proximal row carpectomy. In real life, now there are other things that you can do. You're like There's little membranes that you could put in between there and there are other techniques. But I think for the test, if there is degeneration of the capitate that that you would not choose a proximal rail carpectomy. And again, these are going to be patients that have like these stage three and stage four snack of how we're going to treat these. So if they do have capitate degeneration, something that you can do is a four corner fusion. So this is when you actually take out the scaphoid bone and you fuse the capitate, the lunate, the hamate, and the triquitrium. So again, four corner, because you're fusing those four bones and you're taking out the scaphoid. So again, so this is going to be for like stage three or stage four. So you're choosing between like, you know, a lot of the answer choices that'll say, again, proximal row carpectomy or scaphoid excision and four corner fusion. And if they have like capitate degeneration, you can go with the four corner fusion. Other things, 
that you could do, you could do a complete wrist arthrodesis, which is an option for, again, patients with pancarpal disease. And then you can do a total wrist arthroplasty, which may not be best for like kind of these younger patients. I think in general, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like the young laborers and people that are pretty active, they typically would, would go with some type of arthrodesis, especially like in the hand when you're talking about like PIP and other joints versus arthroplasty. So I know I just said a lot, but pretty much radial stylodectomy, you can do wrist innervations, proximal row carpectomies. Don't choose that answer choice if there's a generation of the capitate that you see on the x-rays, because they'll typically show you an x-ray. You can do a four-corner fusion. When you excise a scaphoid, you can fuse the wrist and you can do a wrist replacement. Yeah, the the tests tend to like a, a decision between proximal row carpectomy versus four-corner fusion. So they'll typically show you a stage two or stage three snack wrist, and you'll have to decide, is there lunocapitate arthritis? And if there is, they'll, they'll want you to choose a four-corner fusion. But if it's more mild like let's just say it's a stage two snack so it really hasn't started to involve the capitate at all then they're going to kind of push you more towards a uh, proximal row carpectomy so i think knowing the difference in indications for proximal row carpectomy versus four corner fusion is probably going to be the high yield topic there yep yep and and, and so moving forth you know we talked about the scaphoid and we have and what happens like different ways to fix it, grafting and then non-unions and treatment of the non-unions. We hope that you all are continuing to learn something from listening to us ramble <laughs> as we did in this episode and as we do in many other episodes. We did, we're going to continue talking about some hand injuries. Uh, and so without further ado, hit the subscribe button if you have not. Please go and check out the podcast companion book if you have not. And uh, we'll see everybody next time. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, Locum Tenants should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if Locum Tenants is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com.